Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawson Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Glad to have you back, Carlos. Hey, it's always good to be here. Very excited for a new episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast, so let's get right to it. Who do you have for us today? John of the Cross, St. John of the Cross, who um, lived between 1542 and 1591 died when he was 49 years old and was a close associate and friend of St. Teresa of Avila. As a matter of fact, she kind of uh, pointed him in the direction that made him who he is. So tell us a little bit about John of the Cross. Yeah, John of the Cross. Interesting. His birth name was Juan de Yepes y Alvarez, and he was descended from Jewish converts. So he was technically known as a converso, even though he was himself had never been Jewish, his ancestors who were. And by the time that he reached adulthood in Spain, there were already so-called purity of blood statutes, which prevented anyone descended from Jews or Muslims to hold positions of responsibility in either church and state or to actually practice certain professions. So there was an active discrimination that started while he was an adult, although he himself uh, escaped this discrimination. His life was far from free from trouble. His father died when he was um, just a little boy. And his mother, you know, back then there were no uh, pension funds. <laughs> he lived in extreme poverty during his entire childhood and actually uh, ended up being educated as an act of charity by schools that took in poor children. He got a very good education, but you know, he lucked out. His life could have gone in a very, very different direction. There are some who think one of his brothers died in childhood and they think it might've been from malnutrition. So he had a very, very hard beginning to life and the rest of his life was also fairly hard, but he is one of the greatest mystics in the Catholic tradition and was proclaimed the doctor of the church in the early 20th century. It's one of the few theologians and mystics that have that title, Doctor of the Church. And his life, which was so difficult in the beginning, seemed to not be pointing in the direction which he uh, eventually took, because he ended up studying at the University of Salamanca, the oldest and finest university in, in Spain during his day. He was very, very well trained in, in theology, and he was very, very, very intelligent and also a literary genius. He wrote in Spanish, Castilian Spanish for his day, but his texts, mystical texts, and his poems are simply beautiful. And the poems, as a matter of fact, and we'll get to the poems later on, poems are just so stunningly beautiful, so moving. He is one of the few mystics who, uh, Teresa of Avila also wrote poems, but his poems are just, she wrote many more poems than she did. And they, they are a unique distillation of his mysticism. And we can get to that later. At one point in his life, this is where St. Teresa comes in. He joined the monastery and he thought he would join a different order. Uh, he joined the Carmelites. Then he, he thought he would become a Carthusian. And you know, Carthusians, I think I've brought them up before. They're very, very strict. 
they're actually one of the very few orders in the history of the Catholic Church that claims it has never needed to be reformed because it was never corrupted. Carthusians live a combination of communal monasticism and hermit monasticism. The individuals live apart from each other in their own cells. And they get together, of course, periodically, but much of their day is spent in solitude as hermits. And he wanted to join that order. But just by coincidence or divine providence, I forget why he was in Medina del Campo, he ran into Teresa of Avila, who was establishing one of her convents there, one of her reformed Carmelite convents in Medina del Campo. And she talked them out of joining the Carthusians and actually roped them in into starting a reform of the male Carmelites in Spain. So Teresa was already reforming the female Carmelite order, which took the name the Discalced or Barefoot Carmelites. They wanted to return to their original 13th century rule with great strictness. And she convinced John to do the same for the males. So he undertook this task. Very hard thing to do in um, any time period, but especially in the 16th century in Spain, there were already so many religious orders that most towns and cities did not like the establishment of new monastic foundations because it just meant there were either more beggars begging for money or more buildings taken up by monastics. And it could be a, a drain on town resources. So anyway, he set out to reform the male Carmelites and everything was going according to plan, slowly, but according to plan. And for a while, he also served as chaplain at Teresa's monastery. Uh, they got to know each other very, very well. And as I think I've mentioned before in our, our podcast on the physical phenomena of mysticism, he and St. Teresa levitated together. It's one of the few instances of two mystics going up simultaneously. But, but that's not what makes him so important. That's not what makes him a doctor of the church. It's his mysticism. But before we get to that, you know, I said last time in closing that we would get to someone who was persecuted and who was uh, maltreated by his own brethren. And that's what happened to John. Given the length of time that we have, it's not possible to get into the details of this, but the male Carmelites uh, started arguing with each other about whether or not this reform of their own order should be carried out. And to cut to the chase, make a long story as short as possible. John's brethren ended up imprisoning him in Toledo, the city of Toledo, in their monastery in Toledo, in a very small room, six feet by 10 feet, with no window. The only light he got in there was from a hole in, in the door to the room next door that had some outside light coming in. He was fed nothing but bread, water, and a little bit of dried fish. And he was there for many months in this condition. And they also periodically whipped him. And he was whipped in the presence of, of his brethren. So during this period, oddly enough, he managed to write some of his most sublime poetry. A brother who was not into, you know, harassing him, uh, snuck him paper. And I suppose he had some kind of writing implement. I don't know what he managed to compose some of his most sublime poetry. And also much of his mysticism was shaped 
by this experience of you know, utter desolation and actually you know persecution and torture. So John of the Cross was persecuted for wanting to reform? Yes. And, uh, you know, the story gets very, very complicated and involved because it involves the male leadership of the Carmelite order in Spain. And as is the case of anything in the Catholic Church, you know, some connection to Rome, officials from Rome, who are giving certain orders to the Carmelites and the leaders of the Carmelites uh, don't agree and so on and so forth. And John of the Cross gets caught in the crossfire, basically. And because he was, in fact, very active in, you know, establishing new monasteries. If you're opposed to some change, you usually go for the person who is spearheading the change. And so that's what happened to him. But he escaped. He escaped from his cell. And actually, I, I don't know if it's still there or not. But 40 years ago, when I was in Toledo, I saw, I saw the plaque on this wall that said it is in this spot that John of the Cross climbed down from his window and escaped <laughs> his imprisonment. I've been to Toledo several times, and I'm sorry to say I've never had a chance to see that. Uh, I, I didn't go looking for it. I just stumbled onto it. It was a very, very uh, odd moment. There's just so much there. It's it's a tiny little town, but every step you take, there's something to there's look something. at. There's something. It's very compact, and it is a very old city. It's yeah. it's one of my favorite cities in Spain. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. And it was shelled during the Spanish Civil War and uh, suffered quite a bit of damage. But it, if anyone goes there now, they won't see any signs of that destruction. They'll just see this beautiful medieval city. Very compact, right? Still ringed by walls. Definitely wasn't designed to sustain automobile traffic. No, absolutely not. <laughs> And I don't know how a carriage could get through some of those streets because yeah. uh, oh, a yeah. horse would barely fit. And it's very tough for women in high heels because of all the cobblestones. Uh, wasn't made for high heel shoes either. It definitely wasn't. Which all these monastics would approve of. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, make it hard. Make it hard for people to walk in high heels. <laughs> but yeah, John uh, escaped and, uh, you know, he ended up being able to carry out some more reforms eventually all this infighting within his order and fighting between papal representatives and so on it all calmed down for a while but towards the end of his life it, it, it fired up again and he, uh, he actually ended up having a very tough time towards the end of his life he didn't live all that long you know by our standards he died young 49 and <clears throat> he died in Huesca where there was a Carmelite monastery but ended up being buried in Segovia. And like St. Teresa of Avila, his body was cut up, carved up, and different pieces of it sent to different places where there are still relics of St. John of the Cross. And he wrote a lot. That's the part of the story we haven't gotten to. You know, He's not, all, not only a reformer, but a writer. Well, before we get to that, can you tell us a little bit about his relationship with St. Teresa of Avila? Oh, they were very, very close. You know, he had served as her confessor for a few years. And from her, of course, uh, he not only picked up the reforming fervor, but also her mysticism. Although if you read their texts, and then there are similarities that we can focus on, John is a very different writer. 
And as a matter of fact, if you view them from a certain perspective, which is that of organization, they are very different. Whereas uh, Teresa's texts, they vary not only in, in how they're organized, but they vary <clears throat> insofar as the extent of having a very precise outline, especially when compared to John's. John, John's texts, I like to call them scientific. You know, he is so detailed. He's got such a clear, detailed outline of everything as compared to Teresa. He is much more academic, as one would expect, because Teresa didn't have a university education, and he did. Uh, he's very systematic. He proposes a, a system. Teresa does too, especially in her interior castle, the Spanish title Las Moradas. That, that's her most carefully outlined and schematic text about the mystical path. But St. John just has her beat. And actually, St. John can be very difficult to read. And as a matter of fact, I tend not to assign John of the Cross to any of my classes. Because I learned the hard way early on when I was a bit too optimistic <laughs> about how much how much my students could take in. And I realized that for a couple of years, two or three years of assigning John and, and seeing how befuddled my students ended up being, that I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to assign this guy anymore. That's too much. It's too hard. So I do mention him in my class, of course, and we read uh, poems. That's, that's, that's one part of John of the Cross I'd love to assign. But of course, there's nothing harder when it comes to translation, nothing harder to translate than poetry because so much of poetry has to do with the words chosen by the poet and how they rhyme, especially. Sometimes you can't find a way of translating anything that has the same beauty as the original. I caught, as I was reviewing John of the Cross and, and Teresa for this podcast, the one thing caught my eye that I think they both have in their poetry that is similar, and I think, you know, they shared it. I don't know if Teresa influenced John or vice versa, or if they're both, you know, of course, drawing from the same tradition. But in their poetry, they do focus in, in some places on the fact that they'd like to die, you know, because they've been, they've been to a much, much better dimension and they miss it when they're not there. They long for death as, as a release from basically, you know, imprisonment in the body or especially in the case of John of the Cross, his love poetry, the absence of the loved one or the distance from the loved one or the infrequency of togetherness. He only outlived Teresa by nine years. She died in 1582, he died in 1591. But both of them are still acknowledged, not only as the two most important Spanish mystics, but two of the most important mystics of the Catholic tradition and therefore Christian tradition. I wonder what was the age difference between St. John of the Cross and oh, he, Teresa he was, of Avila? He was much younger. She was born in 1515. He was born in 1542. So that's a considerable difference in age. And he, so of course he admired her and he looked up to her and you know, she basically turned his life around. You know, it's very hard to do that with somebody else's life. So I think the age difference gave shape to their relationship. Almost like a motherly relationship. Yeah, 
that's how that's how it turned out. And actually, this happened as Teresa aged. You know, she kept getting younger confessors, younger than herself. And some of these young men, especially Jeronimo uh, de Gracian, when she died, were just devastated, devastated by her absence, right? So they were very attached to her. And Gracian actually was so attached to her that, you know, circled back to the subject of their corpses, uh, Gracian carried around his neck, one of Teresa's fingers, which according to descriptions of those who came near Gracian said, oh, it was a beautiful smell, wonderful smell emitted by the, the finger. This sounds so, you know, like, it's unlike our culture. Nowadays. Yeah, I was about to say, it sounds so morbid. Yes, it does. It does. But, you know, this is one thing about Spanish mysticism, especially 16th century Spanish mysticism, is this, I was going to say fascination, but it's not fascination. It's it's something uh, stronger than that, is this... Uh, veneration. Yeah, veneration of the, the saintly dead, the sacred dead, and of the crossing over from life to death as something wondrous. Painful, yes, but wondrous, because those bits and pieces taken from both of these saints we're talking about were believed to be connected to heaven. It was a physical connection with heaven. And in both their cases, you know, they longed for death as, as releasement rather than as something terrible, terrifying. But one has to keep in mind that, of course, they're, you read their texts and you see what they have to say about their experiences. Well, they've gone somewhere that's so much better. And they've encountered God very, very deeply, intensely. In a few minutes, we'll get to this in St. John of the Cross, you know, why all of this is so significant and so necessary for understanding him. Well, before we get there, can you tell us a little bit about his mysticism? Yeah, sure. Again, as I said, it's it's difficult because it's it's complexity and it's the amount of detail. But he's very focused on a specific path to the divine that involves self-emptying and self-abandonment and letting go. Does that sound familiar? Oh, yeah. Well, we've been there before. In this respect, he's very influenced by Eckhart and his disciples, what gets called Rhineland mysticism, the Rhenish mystics, Eckhart and his disciples. You know, the similarities with, with them are very intense. And this self-abandonment uh, and self-emptying, he breaks down into four phases. And this, this is as far as I'm going to get into the outline. Because <laughs> after that, Actually, it gets more complex. First step, he calls the active night of the senses. Notice night. All these four steps are nights. Nights are dark. There's a bit of darkness here. The active night of the senses. Is this the first step towards you know, ridding yourself of attachment to this world? And uh, he speaks about this very clearly in, in one of his books entitled or titled, sorry, Ascent of Mount Carmel. And actually for Ascent of Mount Carmel, he actually drew a diagram. It's too bad we can't show it, you know, because we don't have images on this podcast. But if this were a, a YouTube video instead of an audio podcast, first thing I'd be showing would be this diagram that he himself drew, very detailed. And why Mount Carmel? Well, they're Carmelites, for heaven's sakes. They're an order that was founded on Mount Carmel. The Holy Land. So that's the first step. 
active night of the senses. Second step is the passive night of the senses. Notice, active and passive. Teresa also talks about this division of stages between active and passive when it comes to prayer. That, you know, the early stages of prayer, you're very active, you're contributing a lot. It's hard, it's difficult. She uses images that are about water, how one obtains water. At the very beginning, yeah, you're very active. And actually praying is a lot like drawing water from a well. It's hard. Second step, passive night of the senses. This can be explained most deeply in another book of his, The Dark Night of the Soul. Boy, does that title call up all sorts of images. Actually, he wrote a poem, Dark Night, while he was locked up in that tiny six by 10 foot cell without light. That imprisonment actually transformed him. And as I was preparing for today, I saw that some, someone interpreting his incarceration or his imprisonment, not, not as something that his brothers uh, should be criticized for, but as something wonderful that God did because that incarceration so shaped him, turned him into the mystic he was. So anyway, in the passive night of the senses, God is actually helping you, pulling you out of yourself. You know, I came across a passage from the dark night of the soul a few days ago that that really touched me, and, and I didn't really put two and two together. We hadn't done this podcast yet, but now that you're speaking about it, I could see how what he writes really does go to the feelings that you're talking about. And just to share a little passage here where he writes, such souls, therefore, delight to spend many hours and perhaps whole nights in prayer. Their pleasure are penances, their joy is fasting, and their consolations lie in the use of the sacraments and in the speaking of divine things. That's John of the Cross, very much so. It's dark and speaks of what we would consider today to be not pleasurable things, such as fasting or oh, or, I know, or, or doing penance. But he yeah. says that that's where we find consolation. That is the stripping of yourself. Strip yourself clean of all attachments. And of course, like Eckhart and his disciples, you're stripping yourself because inside God is within you. The deepest part of you is God. So you have to like not strip yourself in a metaphorical way. John speaks of desnudes, nakedness, of spiritual nakedness, not bodily nakedness, but spiritual nakedness is what you need to achieve. And that's the active night of the spirit, step number three. You rise higher by also ridding yourself, not just of you know your bodily attachments, but your spiritual attachment, your selfishness, your self-centeredness. And then the fourth step, before we run out of time, is the passive night of the spirit, which of course involves this God taking over. And this is where you have your highest mystical experiences. But notice that all four stages are nights, and there's that dark night of the soul. There's a dark night of the senses as well. Dark night of the senses followed by the dark night of the soul. And this is where his mysticism gets very uh, philosophically profound because uh, he's also very influenced by Dionysius the Areopagite, 6th, 7th century, who is himself very Neoplatonic. But the thing is that God is so utterly beyond anything humans can imagine. 
so utterly beyond the material world created by him that to cross over from this realm to God's realm actually involves crossing through your own nothingness. And St. John in his texts and his poetry often uses the Spanish word nada, nothing. And it repeats over and over again in, in some of his poetry. And I'm going to read one in Spanish and then attempt the translation. Exercise in self-immolation, right? <laughs> self uh, of embarrassing oneself because it's impossible to translate this beautiful stanza from one of his poems. Especially coming from Spanish, which is one of the romance languages where it just, it flows yeah. so beautifully and English can rarely do it justice. Yeah, you know, it's much easier to rhyme in Spanish than it is in English. <laughs> Something I learned in school long ago. But here we go. Para venir a gustarlo todo, no quieras tener gusto en nada. To come to enjoy or savor everything, don't you even try to have pleasure in nothing. Uh, that's a bad translation. It's best I can do. Para venir a saberlo todo, no quieras saber algo en nada. Again, if you want to know everything, know nothing. That's a better way of translating. Para venir a poseerlo todo, no quieras poseer algo en nada. To want to possess everything, aim to possess nothing. Para venir a hacerlo todo, no quieras ser algo en nada. To be able to be everything, aim to be nothing. And there's a similarity there, too, with the cloud of unknowing, uh, which says at one point, you know, the real ultimate pain of being human is not who you are. It's simply that you are, knowing that you are, that you exist, and you're so much of nothing. But then, of course, this nothingness, going through this nothingness, going through this darkness gets you to, as he says in this poem, everything. It's a contrast between everything and nada. Every stanza ends one in todo, second one in nada. Todo, nada, todo, nada, todo, nada, todo, nada. Or as I, I've joked with my students, nada, nada, nada. This is what you encounter, nada, nada, nada. Also happens to be in Spanish, the verb for swimming is nadar. So maybe he's just being commanded to swim, swim, swim. Ha ha. And nobody gets the joke because it's a bad joke. You know, we've talked a lot about asceticism on our podcasts, and, mm -hmm. and it's always been in the frame of physical asceticism, denying yourself food, mm -hmm. denying yourself sleep, denying yourself shoes, as in the case of the Descalced. But this almost sounds to me yeah. like a spiritual asceticism. Yes, very much so. Of a very deep, deep awareness. Not just awareness, but an encounter with your own nothingness and with God's total otherness. He who is everything. And this is where it gets very philosophical, of course. But there's this other dimension to it, which I, I don't want to leave out before we run out of time, which is that love plays such a critical role in St. John of the Cross's mysticism because this stripping yourself down to nothing is all out of and for love. And I've tried this with uh, some of my classes. I've given them uh, snippets of John of the Cross's poetry without telling them who it's from and have asked them, tell me, is this a secular love poem? or a religious love poem. 
And boy, oh boy, quite often the answers I get are, well, this is secular poetry. It's a love poem. It's a beautiful love poem. What, what does this have to do with mysticism? <laughs> so, for instance, you know, here's the spiritual canticle, another text of John of the Cross, pure poetry, is a rephrasing of the biblical book, Song of Songs, which is a, about love. Actually, it's usually referred to as the most erotic text in the Bible. And it, it's been interpreted by Christians. Uh, I think we've spoken about this before. Interpreted by Christians as uh, the, the entire book is a metaphor for the soul's longing for God and of the spiritual marriage between the human soul and God. So St. John takes this beautiful biblical text, but composes this, I think, even more beautiful poetry in Castilian Spanish. And there are two stanzas in particular I, I want to focus on because they're the ones I give to my students and say, tell me, what does this say to you? Especially this one stanza. Descubre tu presencia y mateme tu hermosura. Mira que la dolencia de amor no se cura, sino con la presencia y la figura. How does one translate this? I've tried many times. I've given up feeling good about any translation. But basically, you know, first line is reveal yourself. Descubre tu presencia. The way the poem is building up to this point is that the lover has vanished. The lover's not around, but you long to be there with your loved one. So reveal yourself. Descubre tu presencia. Y mateme tu hermosura. Slay me with your beauty. God, I, I get chills every time I read this. Slay me with your beauty. No, death again. Kill me with your beauty. Mira que la dolencia de amor. Consider that dolencia could be interpreted as an illness. The illness of love, the pain of love, is not cured, no se cura, except with presence, presencia y figura and how you look, your beauty. There's no mention of God there whatsoever, right? But this is all about the soul's longing for God. It's missing God. It's wanting to be with its love, which is God. And there's a stanza before that one that goes as follows. Ay, quien podrá sanarme? Who could heal me? Acaba de entregarte ya de vero. No quieras enviarme De hoy más ya mensajero que no saben decirme lo que quiero. I'll translate very loosely. Who could heal me? Give yourself to me. Truly give yourself to me. Stop sending me messengers that don't know how to say what I want or don't know how to speak to me of what I want. God sends messengers. Messengers are the, the world he created. The beauty of the world is not enough. And they're actually poor messengers of the real thing. So I think one reason that John of the Cross ended up being declared doctor of the church is not because of the beauty of his poetry, but the, the meaning, the, the truths that his poetry tries to convey are expressed so clearly, not as a systematic theologian would write or speak about these mysteries, 
But poetry has this way of getting you into mystery directly. It's definitely a very powerful. And I could see how your students would construe it to be secular, to be, to be about one human loving another human. But when you consider that St. John had been to the other side, he had seen real love, he had seen what real desire and what real beauty is, we tend to forget that human desires and, and human love is what God gave us, but confined within our own ability to understand it. So he was able to see it, and we sort of hear it, and we try to frame it within our own ability to understand it. But it just transcends that. When you consider he's talking about God, he's talking about Jesus, it just mm-hmm. transcends that those desires that we have, that we live with, that we're born with, that we deal with day in and day out, they were given to us by God, but those desires were designed to be for God, not necessarily for others. Yeah. And, you know, being humans and being fallen, yes. we've sort of, you know, I guess pun intended, we've perverted them. Yeah. Well, no, I, you know, yeah, you're right. You're right. Because the whole uh, issue of the fall of the human race, the Garden of Eden, is, is part, all part of this too. And, you know, there's an echo of Augustine in just about every mystic, Christian mystic. But in St. John, it's a very, very strong echo that, you know, you have made us for yourself. You made us for yourself. And we are restless until we rest in you. This this is perfect, not St. John's words, but this is what he's trying to get across, is that our ultimate longing, our ultimate fulfillment comes from the divine. But, you know, I have often uh, considered the fact that as much as the doctrine of original sin and as much as uh, all teaching on the fallenness of human nature and the way that things get perverted, right? Like love gets perverted. I'm willing to bet, I am, that John of the Cross at some point in his life fell in love with another human and had experiences. Otherwise he could, aside from his mystical experiences, to convey it like this in language like this, there has to be a commensurate human experience of love and especially of unrequited love. Show yourself to me, descubre tu presencia, and slay me with your beauty. Ah, that's powerful. That's the one that is not there. So the back and forth, you know, between the divine realm and the physical realm, human love, divine love, these things paradoxically, mysteriously, are simultaneously very different, but also have a certain degree of similitude or sameness. You know, in, in pure human language, in pure human terms, I have heard some men say when they, they've seen a very beautiful woman, say, oh, oh, I just want to die right now. Oh, she kills me. <laughs> Her beauty slays me. I've, seen, I've heard men say things like this. Beauty has a way of overwhelming you sometimes. And actually in the poems here, in St. John's poems, he talks a lot about the beauty of God's creation, right? That beauty. But what he's saying here is, is so much more. Those are the messengers that don't really come close to what you really need, what you really want. But of course, you know, in, in our uh, self-indulgent society, all of the stuff about dark nights and cleansing yourself, ridding yourself of attachments and so on and so forth, it just doesn't sell. But nonetheless, this remains perhaps the 
most uh, important, most central teaching of the Christian mystical tradition. You know, you have to wonder, mystics of today, uh, not to point to any specific mystic, uh, I'm just saying in general, when you think of the mystics from that era, from the 15th and 16th century, the way language was expressed, the way people viewed each other, the, peop- the way the world viewed God and everything else, it would be very difficult, I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, it would be very difficult for someone like a St. John of the Cross to have been born in this era, in this age that we live in, and express himself in the same way, and it would be understood, appreciated. Well, yeah, we're all our, ourselves, our identities, our, you know, the, who we are, who we become is always shaped by our environment, our immediate environment. So, yeah, he writes like someone from another age, one might even say another world, right? I forget which French historian said this, and I'm paraphrasing, that the past is another country or another world. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to wonder. Although there, there have been um, mystics or mystically inclined Christians who have, uh, in the 20th century, and I suppose in the 21st, but I, I, I have found them because I, I haven't looked. But in the 20th century, certainly I can think of certain figures that just lived out this self-emptying by dedicating their lives to helping the poor, the sick, and so on and so forth. One that comes to mind is uh, Teresa of Calcutta, St. Teresa of Calcutta, who dedicated herself to living with the poor and serving the poor. But curiously enough, some text of hers came out publicly. Uh, I don't know where it had been and why nobody had paid attention to it before, but it was a text that explains how for many, many, many years, she didn't feel the presence of God at all. And I remember reading in the news media, of course, popular press, people were astounded. Well, how could this woman carry on, you know, with that life of hers so grim without feeling the presence of God? Oh, you mean that this great saint didn't feel God? Well, maybe there is no God. I heard, I read something like that. But in fact, these people misunderstand the whole thing that a lot of these mystics, you know, the dark night of the soul is awful because in the dark night of the soul, you not only feel your nothingness, but God's not there. And it's horribly painful and scary. It's part and parcel of the, or as one might say, the yin and yang of Christian mysticism, the confluence or convergence of opposites, the emptiness and the total fulfillment. When you think about it, however, when these mystics have these experiences and they cross over and God shows them the splendor of, of eternity, Think about that, and for someone to be able to understand the good, they have to understand the bad. As you were talking, I remembered the story you told during our podcast on Teresa of Avila about the vision that she had where she was put into this little nook or cranny inside a, a stone wall that she could barely fit in, and that's right. God was showing her what hell would be like. And you wonder, you know, what's the purpose of this? What's, right. you know, what does anyone gain from this? But maybe it's God showing us for you to fully understand the good, you have to fully understand the bad. Yeah, absolutely. You're correct. Uh, and actually, in the case of Teresa's life, that uh, 
vision of hell came very early on in her, her mystical life. And it was actually a turning point for her. She realized, you know, this could be my, my end unless I go in the opposite direction. Up to that point, she had been by her own description. And again, I don't know, she might be exaggerating her own lukewarmness, but uh, she had described herself as a lukewarm, not, not really into it. But yeah, that's why I brought up the idea of the coincidence of opposites or the confluence of, of opposites, the emptiness and the fulfillment, the emptiness. And, you know, descubre tu presencia. Please reveal yourself. Let me know you're there. Slay me with your beauty. The longing is the path. That's one way of, I guess, summarizing what St. John of the Cross is getting at. You want to be on the path? Longing, love, and the painful parts are absolutely necessary, which is all a mystery, you know? You would think that it should all be sweet and full of light, but that's not the human condition, unfortunately. But the highs outweigh the lows. Or the highs are the highs can only get higher if you bend down to the lowest. That's another way of putting it. I think that's what you were saying. It's another way of saying what you just said. In order to get really high, boy, you've got to hit bottom. Then you know how high how high the high is. Well, if you're if you're born on the top of Mount Everest, you really don't understand how high you are unless that's you right. go down to the base. Yeah, that's another beautiful way of putting it. So Again, we're face to face with great mysteries about not just the, the divine, but about human nature and the, the place that suffering has in shaping people. And, you know, you can put two people through the same ordeal, you know, like St. John of the Cross becoming an orphan at a very early age. And they come out different, the two people. St. John of the Cross ends up becoming a, a saint, a mystic, but someone else in the same situation actually this very same time period, Spanish literature is, uh, this is known as the golden age of Spanish literature. One of the genres of literature that becomes extremely popular at this time, known as picaresque literature, where the main character is uh, not a very nice person. Picaro. What is picaro? Picaro is a very sly person, right? Very sly and slimy person. Very clever. And actually, the, you read picaresque literature, <laughs> at least the, the ones I've read, so often the main character is somebody who's been orphaned and then goes to live a life of crime and deceit and so on and so forth. An anti-hero, right? But St. John came out all right. Yeah, I think I would so. say so. Now, we met, you mentioned in the beginning both he and Teresa Vavila experiencing levitation. Uh, what other types of mysticism or physical phenomena did the St. John of the Cross yeah, you experience? You know, I, I have run across anything other than that as levitations. But that's also because um, I have not read as deeply in John of the Cross as I have on Teresa. I'll confess, I don't think I have read any hagiographies or, you know, lives of St. John. So that uh, goes on my reading list now. I, I've got to catch up on this. I think it's time for you to write a book on St. John of the Cross. Oh, gosh, I dare not. I dare not. I, uh, I'll make a deal with God. You let me live to be 120. <laughs> I'll have plenty of time to catch up. But catching up on John of the Cross is difficult. You know, 
just like the ascent of Mount Carmel is difficult. The ascent of St. John's text is, is very difficult. And I know I'm a, I guess people might say I'm, I'm a weenie. I'm a weenie. I'm, uh, I'm just, uh, or lazy. Climbing that Mount Carmel is hard, but I know my abilities. And I know when I've come close to reaching my limits. So I'll stay with the poetry of St. John of the Cross. For now, anyway. It's not a bad thing to stay with. No, no, no. It's, it's so beautiful. And actually, you know, I'll insert a personal note here, which is that, you know, I lost my Spanish basically when I was 11, when I, when I came to the United States. And my first foster family didn't speak any Spanish. I had to learn English really fast. But from there on in, I just got put in situations increasingly more so where I had no one to speak Spanish to. So I kind of lost it. But every time I look at those poems, boy, they just touch something in me. That language just touches something in me that's just more me, right? It's more me than anything in English, even though I love English. And in many ways, I, I can compare the two languages and say that English has more sort of earthy words in a sense. These words that are just so strongly Anglo-Saxon like slap <laughs> or bog, you know, what's a bog? Yeah, the word itself is kind of boggish, isn't it? Bog. Spanish yeah, has some a, words like that, but. There's a lot of words in English that kind of sound like what they are. Yes. Yeah. Uh, much, though, though there are some in Spanish as well. Oh yeah, there are. There are some in Spanish that are beautiful in their own, but whatever your mother tongue is, you know, depending on when it is that you shed your mother tongue, have a different impact on you. There was a time there when uh, that one stanza that I focused on from St. John of the Cross, Descubre tu presencia. Man, that just reached some place inside of me that no other text had ever reached before. And, you know, I actually used to have uh, discussions with my wife, Jane. She's a scholar of literature. And I, I used to have friendly arguments with her. I didn't understand poetry. And I would say, what's this use of poetry? Why beat around the bush? Just say what you mean. <laughs> Why not come out directly and say exactly what it is that you want to mean? What's with all these metaphors? And I, I think St. John of the Cross was the, the one poet who turned me around and made me see the beauty, actually the superiority of poetry to prose. Well, the poetry is beautiful, and St. John of the Cross has a, an incredible story but I think what we really take away from, from our talk today is he was an incredibly complex man. Yes, and brilliant, just brilliant in every respect, moral, intellectual, spiritual. I found that plaque in Toledo by pure chance. I also stumbled onto the, the place that has the, the largest pieces of his body, Segovia. I was visiting Segovia for the first time. I had no idea he was buried there. And he's buried in a church that's below Segovia, which is on a cliff. I went down there with, with my wife, Jane. I didn't know what to expect. And there's a whole busload of French. I thought they were French tourists, but no, they were French pilgrims who had come to venerate John of the Cross. And it was another one of those beautiful moments. Oh, what a surprise, he's here. And they were all um, praying the rosary in French, in Segovia. <laughs> it's one of those. You know, it sounds to me, Carlos, like God's been telling you for a while now that you need to write a book about St. John of the Cross. Yeah. 
you keep you yeah, keep uh, perhaps so coming uh, bumping into bumping him by into, chance and yeah. maybe it isn't by chance of course not yeah you're right and we needed this show for me to discover that maybe god is telling you to reveal the presence of saint john of the cross oh well maybe maybe yes maybe and of course you know if you're doing it in castilian spanish you have to lisp which I, I refuse to do the lisping it's funny because when if you spend enough time there it starts to stick to you oh yes it does yes it's uh as they say in spanish muy pegajoso it's a sticky <laughs> or as they would say pegajoso pegajoso yeah uh, so yeah one discovers these things they, they're revealed bit by bit and usually through other people so thank you well, I hope I hope this was an inspiration for you. Well, let's see. Yeah, let's see. Well, we've come to the end of another great podcast. And thank you for sharing with us about St. John of the Cross and a very complex man and a very brilliant man, as we've come to learn, and an incredible poet. So with that in mind, who do you have for us on the next episode? Well, we'll go back in time to uh, Hildegard of Bingen one of the most amazing women of the Middle Ages, and also one of the most amazing women in the history of Christianity, one of the most amazing mystics. Yeah, Hildegard is a very complex in a very different way from St. John of the Cross. Well, we'll soon find out. Yeah, looking forward to it. Same here. Well, I've really enjoyed the show today, as always, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Christian mysticism podcast if you have any questions for dr air you'll find our email address in the show notes just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode and don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the christian mysticism podcast <music>